welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 43. Really interesting topic and guest this week. I know that you're going to learn a lot. I'm going to learn a lot with you. Um, but before we jump into that, let me do my pitch for Counterpunch. So I got an email. Uh, I may have mentioned this last week, but in any case, I got an email and a message from two different people uh, with images of the Counterpunch print magazine that they got in the mail that they said they purchased a subscription because they were listening to the podcast and because I kept imploring people to do so. Well, that really uh, brings a smile to my face because not only am I working to save the very archaic uh, media known as print publications, but I'm also uh, hopefully driving people to support Counterpunch financially in, uh, in various ways. And that, of course, is, I think, really important as the media landscape, uh, the alternative media landscape continues to shrink and or continues to be co-opted by foundations and various other uh, liberal, progressive, etc., etc., Wall Street causes. So I think that Counterpunch really does stand apart from the crowd. Look at Counterpunch on any given day and you'll see a variety of topics, a variety of perspectives that you probably don't find anywhere else. And that includes the uh, so-called competitors for Counterpunch on the left and in the progressive circle. So uh, do consider getting that print subscription. Also, positive reviews for the podcast on iTunes are greatly appreciated. Drives us up the recommendation charts. Lots of people find out about the show that way. And of course, you can also visit my own website, StopImperialism.org, to follow all my work that's not Counterpunch Radio. So uh, with all of that out of the way, I want to turn to my guest this week. I'm very, very very happy, very pleased to welcome Elif Sarikan to the program. Uh, Elif is a a co-coordinator of the Kurdish Students' Union, uh, also affiliated with the Free Youth Movement. You can follow her and follow the organization on Twitter at E-L-X-E-Y-A-L. That's at E-L-X-E-Y-A-L. That's the Kurdish Students' Union and Elif Sarikan. Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Hello, Eric. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on to discuss, I think, this really important topic that uh, it does get some press, but not nearly enough. And frankly, I think that the coverage of the Kurdish issue broadly, uh, whether in regards to Syria or just generally the Kurdish issue is almost always quite superficial. So I'm very happy to have you on the program to really delve deeper into some of these issues and some of the historical and political issues at play. But before we get into all of that, we have, I guess, what could be really considered breaking news at the moment on on this issue. So I want to start there. Tell us what's happening in the city of Nusaybin, Nusaybin uh, which is right near the Turkish-Syrian border. What's going on in that Kurdish territory there? What's happening with regard to the Turkish military? What should people know? Um, so what's happening in Nusaybin? I'm not sure if uh, many people... Uh, do uh, know about what happened in Jizre a little while ago. Um, So what it is, is it's not much different. Uh, There has been a military siege by the Turkish Special Forces in many Kurdish towns in the southeast of the Turkish-occupied Kurdistan, which is considered North Kurdistan. Um, So the military have uh, sieged these places and employed and deployed uh, curfews and, of course, their strongest special units to so-called... Um, fight terror but of course as many people already know there is the situation is not a so-called war on terror but it's following um, the people of this these areas wanting to declare autonomy and govern themselves after they felt like the Turkish government and um, the parliament and the constitution in general does not represent them and their identity and what they would want to be so within Saibin there has been a siege for over a month now um, I think last time I checked, it had touched 72 days. Um, I can't remember right now the exact um, figure there, but there was a, the, there's been a siege and there has been a, the Yepese, which is the, um, the armed resistance forces that have been fighting the Turkish state forces uh, to, of course, protect their autonomy and try and, of course, strengthen the autonomy which has been demanded by the people of these regions. And, of course, because the Turkish state forces and the Turkish army is the second strongest army 
um, in well, the second strongest NATO army. They have uh, deployed all of their strength in these areas, and the YPS had to withdraw from these areas because, of course, they were uh, given too many losses. And at this stage, where Nusaybin is, is there's many, many civilians. So. Um, at least a few hundred civilians stuck in these uh, s- stuck in these towns, and particularly in the Saibin. And just like in Jizre, there's a civilian stuck in basements. So what happened in Jizre was these people stuck in these basements, um, despite uh, numerous and countless calls to the um, to the administrators um, that have been deploying the Turkish special forces in these areas to save these civilians despite trying to send a countless amount of ambulances to these basements to take out wounded people. These basements were burnt to the ground, so all these people stuck in them were burnt alive. So the situation in Nusaybin is essentially, you know, it's facing the same fate, unfortunately. If we do not act or raise our awareness or somehow put pressure on these forces and these uh, powers, the same thing is going to happen over and over again until the Turkish um, state feels satisfied that they have massacred um, and killed as many uh, Kurdish resistance uh, representatives or just Kurdish people in general. I think that's right. And the the issue for me that I want to broaden out here is that there doesn't seem to be, from my perspective, any real tactical or strategic uh, reasoning behind what the Turkish military is doing, that in effect what they're really doing is they're waging a terror war of their own in an attempt to try to create a situation where the Kurdish people that are within the Tur- within Turkey's borders begin to feel that the cost of continuing to resist Turkish occupation and Turkish oppression, that the cost is simply too high. That way they that Turkey can essentially achieve their goals. Do you think that that is playing into this or do you think that Turkey actually has real tangible military goals here? Um no, you're you're complete um I completely agree with you and I think you're right that there is no actual plan. It's it's a bit of a reckless war using any resource they can and just in a way I feel like I, in the most um tragic and heinous way it's a bit of a party for them because they get to uh, cause as much terror and of course as much damage as possible to the Kurdish areas and to the Kurdish people and Kurdish history and identity and culture just everything that does not um, essentially agree with agree with that, what the Turkishness and what their constitution is about um, this is what they are destroying so um, I was at a talk um, uh, by a Turkish journalist called uh, Cengiz Chandar and what he was saying uh, uh, following some of the personal conversations he's had with Abdullah Gül who's the former president of um, Turkey is that they admitted that actually Turkey does not have a plan B for Syria and what they are doing um, in these um, Kurdish areas of the, in the southeast of their own region they don't have a plan B what they're doing is exactly what you just said is just creating as much um, terror as possible to break the resistance so the Kurdish people come to a point where they don't want their autonomy and they just want to stop perhaps dying and therefore they just submit to um, Turkishness and their demands. Yeah, and it's not something that's specific to Turkey. This is a well-known tactic of so-called counterinsurgency. Uh, this is essentially the model that the French occupiers used in Algeria. This is, in effect, the model that the Israelis use against the Palestinians. So, uh, really, I think that Turkey is positioning itself uh, quite quite favorably in the colonial tradition of terror war against an occupied uh, people. Yeah, completely. I completely agree with you. Um, I mean, of course, we do uh, consider the Kurdistan area to be um, a colony of, of course, in this case, four different states. And, uh, you know, where every diff- the, the four different states have, of course, have their have had their own tactics to oppress or assimilate or massacre the Kurdish people within their borders. Um, essentially, this the the foundations and where the where their uh, tactics and their theory comes from is um yeah imperialism oh there's no doubt now there's another aspect to this um when i was when i was just 
briefly looking at the map, you can't help but notice that Nusaybin is really, I mean, literally right on the Turkish-Syrian border, and it's, I mean, within a very short distance from the Syrian Kurdish town of Kamishli. And Kamishli has come up repeatedly uh, in the last year or so uh, in the context of the war in Syria, particularly because this is an area where the Russians were making deals with the Kurdish forces there uh, for air support, for access to air base, and so forth. So there is a larger geopolitical and strategic imperative, I think, that Turkey Turkey is pursuing here that it's not only about oppressing the Kurds and attacking the Kurds of Nusaybin, but this is also part of this broader conflict that Turkey now has with Russia and with the Syrian Kurds. Um, yeah, completely. So whatever what what they're doing in their within their borders is essentially an extin- extension of their foreign policy, which they have been um, you know desperately shouting from the rooftops about what should be happening in uh, Syria, you know, in North Syria, so where the Syrian Kurds are. And, of course, in response to Russia's involvement and the deals that they have made um, with the forces, um, the Syrian Kurdish forces as well. Um, So what it is is, of course, because of these borders, Turkey feels like and the Turkish state feels like any strengthening, of course, on the Syria side, so Rojava Kurds, um, will, of course, affect and perhaps uh, spill into Turkey. So um, what they are trying to do desperately is that whole border, weaken it as much as possible. So, of course, the Kurds have no strength to um, to build and create their autonomy that they, of course, um, so desperately want and, of course, need because it, it's a human right. And also in response to Russia as well, of course, we all know the downing of the Russian jets and that's how situations yeah. and relationships between Russia and Turkey got a lot worse. Not that they were, you know, not that they were, you know, great before, but they got a lot worse since then. So essentially it's, of course, it's a double... In a way, if they are successful, the Turkish state, it's it's a double win for them because, um, of course, the Kurds don't strengthen. And at the same time, their proxy war um, against Russians will work as well. Yeah, that's right. Now, here's another here's another uh, potential. Uh, and I'm just kind of thinking through this as we're talking. Another potential um objective from the Turkish perspective, perhaps, and I want to get your take on this. Maybe part of the strategy that they have is essentially an attempt to create a provocation wherein the Kurds, either on the Turkish side of the border or their, you know, their their comrades on the Syrian side of the border, where they will be essentially provoked into creating a situation that can then justify Turkish intervention into Syria, that if the Turks continue bombing their cousins and their friends and their, you know, their, their, their second, you know, their, their former roommates and whoever else, you know, these relations across the border there, if they can provoke the Syrian Kurds and the Turkish Kurds into some kind of an overreaction, that can then justify a full military intervention. Um, yeah, I mean, that of course, that, that's the, that is, I guess, and I, I think the aim as well, um, to provoke. And what they did, um, of course, in Turkey was to provoke and what they're doing in Syria. So I was reading, I think it was uh, yesterday or this morning, um, one of the articles I read about um, the Turkish state forces have actually, we know they entered Roja a while ago, but they've been attacking um, some villages. Um, I think it was on the border of Kobane. So again, they have been shelling some uh, villages and they desperately want to provoke something because, of course, and unfortunately, however much throughout the Syrian war and especially against ISIS, um, the US has um, provided air support and airstrikes to the Syrian Kurds. We, Of course, we all know that where their interest lies, if Turkey gets involved, of course, the, 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 the US uh, forces are going to uh, side and uh, be behind the Turkish forces. And this is a key situation here where I think, of course, Kurds need to be strategic. And um, even all the the other forces, they need to be strategic because this is going to end very badly. If if it goes the way the Turkish forces and the Turkish state forces want it to go, it's going to end very badly for everyone. 
Yeah, indeed. And so I want to get a quick sense from you, if I could, on the situation on the Syrian side of the border, because obviously the Kurdish forces, the YPG and the associated uh, uh, militias and others, they have been obviously heavily involved in fighting against the Islamic State, so-called, against ISIS and also against the Nusra Front, the Al-Qaeda affiliate and these other terror groups. So what can you tell us about the situation? Situation in the Kurdish territory of Syria, and has the situation changed at all in recent months? Is it pretty much status quo from what we had six months ago? How do you read what's happening there? Um, in terms of the Rojava, the the declared um, areas, um, they're pretty much still status quo, where you know these areas are the autonomous areas of northern Syria the, um, within Rojava. So Kamishlo, Afrin and um, Kobane, these are the autonomous areas. But the situation has changed in terms of, so South Kurdistan, which is the Iraqi Kurds, they, has, they have shut their borders. So there's an embargo on Rojava very desperately to, of course, stop any kind of development and um, any kind of strengthening in this area. So we, of course, we all know that the South Kurdistan um, Kurds, which is Barzani's Kurds, and Barzani that himself has been working with um, Turkish state forces, and they have shaken hands on many things, um, you know, publicly before as well. And I, I believe one of their agreements is to uh, create and strengthen this embargo on Rojava, so there's no developments, no uh, no strengthening of this area. No one can go we know many many people many academics many journalists who want to visit Rojava and of course report on it help help the situation there many charities but they they can't go because of these of course it's impossible to go through Turkey but it's also uh, the the Iraqi Kurdish um, forces and the Kurdistan regional government have made it quite impossible for anyone to go through their border as well Um, and also we know so the situation with Rojava is um, it stays the same in terms of the autonomy um, and the declarations, of course, are the same within the area. It's strengthening and the solidarity is definitely growing. We know despite the embargo that there's still mass, uh, lots of migration from different areas of Syria to Rojava because they believe and they feel like that's the safest area to be due to, the, of course, the YPG and the YPJ. And at this stage, the Syrian Democratic Forces as well, which is, uh, you know, several groups that have got together to protect these areas. Um, but also we know recently that the Syrian Kurds, so YPG and YPJ and the Syrian Democratic Forces have um, started uh, their their um, operation to liberate Raqqa as well, which is um, slightly south of um, the Rojava area, which essentially will be connected to the North Syrian Federation, which will be the autonomous area of Syria. And they've been quite successful. They've liberated um, quite a few villages in northern Raqqa and they're making their way. They've made um, uh, a lot of ISIS groups and forces retreat. So that's being successful. So in the area, the success, the strength and the developments are growing. But unfortunately, um, international support is being um, clipped and stopped as much as possible because, of course, there's many forces who have interest not to allow that um, area to have international uh, recognition and, of course, grow as well. Indeed. Now, there's some interesting um, geopolitical, I guess, and strategic questions that emerge from this. And you already mentioned it, but it bears repeating this, uh, this, this fact about the Kurds of northern Iraq, because the it's not it's Barzani and also the Talibani, these these clans, I guess, you know, these large extended families and all the patronage and cronyism and everything that goes along with it that that these uh, people that fall within their orbit, they essentially run northern Iraq, run the Kurdish region as basically their own fiefdom, that they are able to make deals with some of the worst elements in the region, and obviously including Erdogan and the Turkish government. They have long-standing cooperation with the Israeli government as well. They are deeply intertwined with U.S. imperialism going back a number of decades. So there, this, I think, complicates the picture of the Kurdish issue generally, because 
I think that the Kurds of the Rojava area of of Syria in many ways are more more intimately connected with their cousins on the Turkish side of the border than they are with the Iraqi Kurds who are in effect uh, controlled directly by Barzani and indirectly by the empire. Um, yes, that what you've just said is exactly correct and what the case is. Um, the, Syri- the Syrian Kurds, so the Kurds of Rojava, definitely have more of a connection ideologically, of course, mainly with um, their their, um, you know, like you said, their comrades and their cousins and their friends in northern Kurdistan, which is the Turkish-occupied uh, Kurdish area. Um, so, of course, these these situations go, um, they do, they, they do have like a historical um, situation as well and some sort of historical relevance as well where the Barzani Kurds, so essentially the Barzani party is a tribe turned into political party and um, so whoever they want they bring to the top of the party and for the last few generations it's just been you know you know the sons and the and the nephews of um, you know the, the whoever was there before yeah. and same with the Talibanis yes same with the Talibanis as well so it's interesting because um, so what's considered is Barzani's uh, Barzani's tribe and group had um, historical relations before the U.S. Uh, intervention and I guess relations they had uh, relations with um, so Iraq's um, Ba'ath regime, which is uh, very what well, it's interesting and of course very tragic that it was the same Ba'ath regime which gassed thousands, tens of thousands of Kurds um, during the Amphal campaign and the Talabani party, which are known to have relations with Iran. So these parties essentially have had this power battle between them to govern uh, the Kurdistan regional government. And what you mentioned with the relations between Turkey and the US, I don't need repeat. I don't need to repeat because that's exactly what it is. I don't, there's no other way I could put it. Um, so what the situation in South Kurdistan, unfortunately for the Kurds, is literally these parties, it's just a power battle. There's no interest in improving the lives or developing um, Kurds, the people themselves. It's just you know, these two parties who who are battling to govern and um, essentially dictate these areas. I mean, the Syrian Kurds and the Northern Kurds um, and the PKK have historically have had certain relations uh, with the Talabani group, but it's always been, it's always been quite, um, quite a, what well, it has, obviously, of course, it's never been a complete relation and it's always been um, quite, um, how should I say, quite a strategic relation, I would say, perhaps on both sides. I'm not quite sure. The party, I believe all these parties themselves are quite divided between them, which is why the whole region, the governing region, all they're interested is in the power, who's going to have the power next and nothing to do with the people. A lot of people, I've never been to South Kurdistan, but a lot of people, a lot of friends who have gone say, it literally just looks like another Turkey with massive Turkish investment and just these over, um, you know, highly developed, certain highly developed cities, which are just, um, I guess, an advertising haven for Turkish products, goods and uh, businesses. Yeah. And, and the other thing that I that I mentioned, and I just want to I just want to reiterate this point, uh, the South Kurdistan or the, the, the Kurdish regional government in, in northern Iraq, uh, they have long standing ties to the Israelis as well and Israeli intelligence and the Israelis in, in, in many ways have long seen the Kurdish issue as something that they could capitalize on for their own uh, intentions. So that kind of complicates the matter because on the one hand, and, you know, Kurdish independence and Kurdish uh, autonomy is something that the Kurdish people obviously deserve. On the other hand, you see outside forces like the United States and the Israelis and others who want to manipulate and use this issue to their own ends. So that, of course, makes it even more complex. Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, so the Israeli relations have been, of course, on Israel's side, the reason why they, they want to support so-called Kurdish independence or, or, well, I mean, of course, in the South Kurdistan area, they're, they're fighting for independence from Iraq right now. Uh, but in general, autonomy is because, you know, is, Israel is at the, at this stage, uh, the only non-Arab uh, country or nation there, which has uh, international recognition and some sort of strength. So that's on Israel's side. This is why they want Kurds 
um, to have some sort of independence or strength because they feel like Kurds would be a perfect ally. Now, of course, I don't know if this is a bit naive of them that they should know that the Kurds of uh, northern Syria, so uh, West Kurdistan and North Kurdistan, of course, the Turkish occupied part, would never be in relation with uh, such a nation state, such a government who, of course, have cre- are, are employing and um, oppressing and massacring people um you know their neighbors which is of course the palestinians but i think with south kurdistan um i think the relations are going to stay it's going to carry on well if anything i think the israelis would like to import the uh the the iraqi kurdish model onto the rest of what would become kurdistan essentially if it's not going to be barzani and his crew themselves that are running a kurdistan then then some other kind of puppet governments that they can control and or cooperate with and so that then kind of complicates the matter when you're talking about something like you know kurdish autonomy within the context of syria because then you have all of these quote unquote so-called pro-syrian activists who attack kurds saying the Kurds are making a deal with the devil, the Kurds are making deals with the U.S., the Kurds are making deals with the Israelis, and so forth, which is a complete, uh, not just an oversimplification, but I would say a, a, a total distortion of the reality of the politics. Um, yes, yeah, certainly. So we've, of course, um, especially during the Kobani times and the U.S. airstrikes uh, situation, we had um, from many groups and many people that, oh, now the Kurds are working with um, the US and that they're, they're essentially they're selling out. But the Kurdish forces in um, northern Syria, so Saleh Muslim, um, said from a very long time ago that this is essentially a strategic um, alliance to, of course, eliminate and, um, you know, destroy ISIS. They made it very clear that there will be no no long-term relations with the US because their ideologies and essentially what the Northern, North Syrian Kurds stand for completely challenges what a, an imperial state like the US has been built on and, of course, what it's about. The Syrian Kurds, what they want, you know, which is democratic autonomy and another name for a democratic confederalism, um, directly challenges any kind of power the US would have in those regions because the whole point of it is power from the people for the people and it's been made very clear from the beginning that there'll be no long-term relations i mean that's why they of course want a puppet government like barzani all across kurdistan and in fact behind closed doors before these things have been offered and if Kurds of North Kurdistan and um, of West Kurdistan wanted, they would, with the U- so U.S. help, would be some sort of an independent Kurdistan by now. But the people of North and uh, West Kurdistan have made it very clear that they are not going to be puppets and they are not going to create another nation state. Firstly, just to be a puppet. And secondly, they see the nation state as the foundational issue of um, what has been happening in the Middle East and, of course, all across the world, they've rejected the nation state in their ideology, so there can be no long-term relation with the U.S., it's interesting. I think we're going to get into a little bit more of the ideological stuff on the other side of the break. Uh, well, why don't we just take the break now then? Because um, I do want to get a little bit more deep into the ideology because this is not only important for understanding the Kurdish issue, but it's also important for understanding how the uh, many Western leftists see themselves in relation to this issue. And of course, uh, to a large extent, that's who we're speaking to here on this program. So let's get into that uh, on the other side side of the break. I'll continue my conversation here with Elif Sarikhan. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back.
we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Elif Sarikhan. Uh, I would highly recommend that you follow her work, that you follow the organization. Again, the Kurdish Students Union, as well as the Free Youth Movement. Follow them on Twitter uh, via Elif at E-L-X-E-Y-A-L. That's E-L-X-E-Y-A-L on Twitter. So, Elif, you were you were saying before we went to the break a little bit about the democratic confederalism uh, concept. And really, just to give a little bit of a background here, um, what we really need to understand is the transformation of the ideology of the revolutionary Kurds um, away from previously uh, marxism Leninism towards a more anarchist Murray Bookchin style ideology of ecologically minded democratic confederalism, local control, direct democracy, and so forth. So um, that transformation, I think, has been significant not only for Kurds, but also for uh, certain elements of the Western left embracing or not embracing the Kurdish question. So can you tell us a little bit about that evolution, how that's happened, and why that's important? Okay. The the evolution of the Kurdish movement, so uh, the ideology of the PKK, and essentially, of course, the way it's uh, translated into these areas, and at this stage, it, it, the mo- where it's been uh, first uh, practiced is West Kurdistan, and now the attempt to, um, you know, s- I mean, I guess saying spill it over will be an oversimplification, but, you know, to create this in North Kurdistan as well. So, um, as you mentioned, uh, the Kurdish Freedom Movement, the PKK, started as a Marxist-Leninist group. And um, Abdullah Öcalan, essentially, who is uh, known as the ideological leader of the Kurds. And I want to mention before I upset any um, anarchists, uh, because I consider myself um, an anarchist as well, that when we say leader, um, he's an ideological and essentially a symbolic leader. And this by no means means um any kind of uh you know he the, the, you know i i want to mention that leading and dominating i think are quite separate things and of course he doesn't dominate and he has provided this um ideology for the kurdish people and, and essentially you know perhaps the whole middle east and maybe even the whole world um as you mentioned he was influenced by murray bookchin who has lots of work on social ecology and confederalism so what he did was take these ideas alongside uh, many other thinkers um, and he created an ideology with women's liberation at its centre. And I think this is key to know because I can't think of any other movement who has said that, uh, which has said that um, women's liberation is key to our liberation. Abdullah has a saying where he says, a society can never be free unless its women are free. And that's exactly what we've seen um, in West Kurdistan and during the war against ISIS and in general, the building of Rojava. Unfortunately, uh, many media outlets and especially um, Western media like in the US and the UK where where, um, I am, has uh, completely fetishized uh, the idea of these uh, women fighters and, you know, spoke about how beautiful these women fighters were um, fighting the, you know, the barbaric ISIS uh, group. Yes, of course, these women are beautiful, but their beauty is not what should be being spoken about. And essentially, if you do want to speak about their beauty, you should talk about where their beauty comes from. And it's ideologically where it comes from, the strength they have taken from this ideology and this strength of the um, knowing that women's liberation is central to their movement and to the development and essentially saving the Kurdish people and hopefully the whole Middle East. We all know, um, uh, and I'll briefly mention that because, of course, I want to talk more a little bit more about the ideology. We all know that the situation in the Middle East is, you know, chaos. And I think, and I think many people who understand the ideology will know that probably the only solution in the Middle East right now is something like democratic confederalism. We've seen the borders that have been drawn by um, the Sykes-Picot agreement and, um, of course, the Treaty of Lausanne have, you know, have been massively... I think saying they have been massively unsuccessful would be an understatement, but we've seen what they have created in the region, that these artificially drawn borders have only bought... um, suffering to the people of the region so democratic confederalism is essentially 
you know, in a way, what we've seen in Rojava, so cantons where there's assemblies in these places and it's um, in the simplest form, a bottom up society where every societal decision where you're from is made from by the people that are living in these areas. So um, these assemblies consist of committees where there's women's committees, there's youth committees, there's um, which will include like student committees and, you know, whatever committee that is. I can't right now give like a um, a outline, particular outline, because of course every area and every society will have different needs and the way they want to structure themselves. But essentially it's committees that make up these assemblies and um, go up to um, representatives where they're perhaps represented on a, a larger regional um, basis as well. But it's important to know that I guess you can still consider it a triangle uh, structure, but the people at the top of the triangle are not any decision makers. They're just, in a way, administrators and spokespeople for the decisions that have been made by the bottom and representing to the whole region. So, of course, there's no isolation and the whole region uh, communicates with each other as well. It's interesting the way that it's the, the way that it's set up. Now, I want to push back a little bit, not because I disagree with any of that, but because I think that there is a danger that needs to be uh, at least incorporated into how we think about it. And that is the fact that um, this area, the area that is Kurdistan or, you know, the, these different countries, the Kurdish regions of each of these countries, um, this area is highly prized by a lot of interests, both imperial interests interests and corporate interests, which are essentially one and the same. And the danger is that a non-state entities on the smaller local level, how able are they going to be to defend themselves from, let's say, an oil company that wants to come in? Because an oil company with billions upon billions of dollars of resources, with private mercenary armies of their own, they would be able to flex a, a significant amount of muscles against uh, smaller entities that are not centralized states with their own military. So I just wonder to what degree that issue, the issue of both self-defense and influence has been discussed at this, um, you know, in, in the context of this confederal system. How able and, and uh, you know, willing are these places going to be to be able to stand up to these large interests? Um, so... The, as we've seen in especially, um, I guess we can talk about the Rojava model as an example for democratic confederalism. And as we've seen, of course, the YPG and the YPJ, how successful they've been at um, uh, defeating ISIS in their areas. So once um, once the structures are set up, these uh, forces are not going to be eliminated. They're going to exist still, of course, to protect the society and um, the areas against um, these uh, potential threats, as, as you just mentioned. And also, there's, there's, an, there's, in terms of the economy, of course, there's still many ideas going around as to how this can be settled um, eventually. Um, like I said, they're still not completely settled. There are still ideas um, that still need to be developed to an extent. But if we just talk about the um, security for a moment, the idea is that every person uh, living in the society, and of course, very important to mention that it will be men and women, um, will be uh, trained um, in a way militarily and in a way like policing trained at one point in their lives. And the idea behind training everyone in this sense is that essentially in the end, they will, there will be no such thing as a police force, uh, which can, uh, which can uh, have any kind of um, power, authority or hierarchy over anyone else in society because everyone's trained and everyone periodically will have um, perhaps, I don't know, shifts to protect the society. And of course the YPG and the YPJ and um, I don't know if eventually it will just uh, develop into the Syrian Democratic Forces Protection Units eventually, but that will still exist because, of course, it's not like a naive utopian idea where it's, you know, let's create this um, amazing um, fairy tale and let's just uh, hope that no one else tries to attack us. Of course, I'm sure and I know that um, the the administrators of these areas are aware of these external 
threats and that will be work to protect. And in terms of international recognition, um, so the PYD, which is um, which is the political arm of the YPG and the YPJ, have opened um, representative offices in um, we know in Russia and a few European cities uh, as well. Now, actually, I think the latest one I saw was a city in. Uh, Sweden that they opened a representative. So the the work right now is to try and push for international recognition of the federal uh, system in northern Syria. And like I said, these systems will not be um, authoritative systems, but rather a communication of what the people of the areas have been decide uh, have decided they want on an international level. Yeah, it, it's important, I think, and interesting because. Um, this question of not just international recognition, but international standing, I think, is really critical here. We remember uh, not that long ago, in fact, um, the negotiations on the Syria issue and the negotiations between the so-called opposition, many of them being Saudi proxy groups and Saudi-funded groups and, uh, you know, under the umbrella of the Free Syrian Army or under the various Islamist uh, umbrella organizations and and the Assad government on the other side, the Syrian government, coming to the table and the Kurds being excluded. Now, this to me is yet another indication of, well, a couple of different things. On the one hand, where the United States really uh, fits into this, how the United States views the Syrian um, Kurdish forces, obviously, as a negative development because they're outside of U.S. control. On the other hand, Russia, who has been establishing more close ties with the Syrian Kurds, also didn't push for them to have a seat at the table for their own reasons that I don't think we have time to go into right now. But it seems to me that the Kurdish territory inside of Syria is probably the most uh, cohesive and most organized uh, actor in this conflict at the moment, maybe with the exception of the Syrian army, but regardless that they don't have a seat at the table, this then drives this question of, well, if we're not even going to be part of the conversation, then why should we do anything but fight for ourselves? Um, yeah, exactly that. Um, so essentially, like this, what you've just said, um, I think really supports the idea that the Kurds knew that they would never have any uh, permanent relations with the US. And I think they also knew that with uh, the Russian forces as well. And as you as you mentioned, the US essentially what, what they uh, initially got involved in Syria was for, you know, ISIS said, uh, we're coming for you, uh, America as well. And because they think they are the, I mean, perhaps this is um, this is not a very political way to put it, but they they're the big dogs in the in the in the world, the U.S. So they they had to stand up to what ISIS said, and they looked at the region and who's the most effective fighting ISIS? Of course, it was the Kurdish forces. So that was the temporary um, temporary relations uh, with the Kurdish forces, and on a long term basis. As previously mentioned as well, um, what the Kurds uh, in the region, of course, stand for directly challenges the US. But at the same time, after providing all um, providing the airstrikes and uh, military support, the US would not want the Kurds on the table because um, essentially, if they're not going to be able to get a get a you know get a piece out of the cake of of Syria and some sort of control. Uh, which they know the Kurds are not going to give to them. Why would they support them? If the Kurds were willing to become a puppet for the US, then of course they would push with all their will to have the Kurds on the table because essentially when some sort of structure is established, they're going to be able to um, eat from the plate of the Kurds in the area. And the Russians, again, it's the same situation, but in this case it's of course because the, um, the Russian state forces... Uh, support, of course, Assad's regime. So again, that's that's contradictory to what the Kurds are building as well. You know, I've I've had uh, numerous debates and some of them quite ugly with some people who consider themselves, quote unquote, 
pro-Syrian, and what they what they all all seem to be with one voice saying is that the Kurds that the, the Kurds are basically traitors that they're traitors to Syria, they're traitors to Assad. They've stabbed Assad and the Syrian Arab army in the back. They're collaborating with the United States. They're they're not necessarily interested in anything other than themselves. That they have engaged in attacks on Sunnis and Shias in areas that the Kurds have taken control over or liberated uh, areas that are in Kurdish territory but have significant non-Kurdish minorities, in some cases majorities. All of this is what they trot out, which is, again, I find to be utterly uh, uh, bankrupt argument because, in fact, the Kurds have mobilized themselves for self-defense. They have mobilized themselves. They have sacrificed a, a significant amount. They've shed a lot of their blood, and all they're asking for is not only a seat at the table, but they're asking for the self-determination that any people in the world would be asking for, particularly given these circumstances. So what I have a hard time, what I have a hard time accepting is, on the one hand, the notion that the Kurds can do business with the U.S. and that they would be independent, but on the other hand, that the Kurds, uh, by virtue of having an alliance of convenience with both the Russians and the U.S., that they're somehow stabbing the Syrians in the back. I think that this is the kind of reductionistic analysis that is unfortunately very predominant among so-called anti-imperialist and so-called pro-Syrian circles. Um, yes, you're, you are completely correct in saying that. And it's interesting people say that they have stabbed uh, the, the, the Syrian government or you know Assad in general in the back when if you do go even slightly back in history and the oppression um, and the struggles the Kurds had to go through within Syria, where, of course, their language was illegal. They, of course, um, didn't... Oh, and also what the Syrians... What the Syrian regime actually did to the Kurds was um, didn't give them any citizenship, which is, of course, an international human rights violation. Human rights violation. But um, as a Kurd... Um, you wasn't allowed Syrian citizenship, and of course, you wasn't allowed to speak your own language, practice your um, any part of your culture. So, um, if there was um, a historical and a very long-standing Arabization process for the Kurds in Syria, just like in Turkey, there was a um, which is actually an official term um, the late Ottoman and the early Turkish Republic. Um, forces uh, used was a turkish fine process so it's quite it's quite interesting and actually a bit sad that there would be people saying that when all you have to do is just go slightly back in history and just look at what the kurds went through under the uh, syrian regime and they just about got some sort of got some sort of autonomy and then they started having to fight um isis and then they've been successful at that and then you know now they're getting um you know, being attacked left, right and centre by um, these um, so-called pro-Syrian um, people groups. Yeah, that's right. And the other thing that I that I always bring up when I'm when I encounter this stuff, because, you know, uh, I've been pretty vocal on the Syria issue for a long time. And my my focus is on the US and imperialism generally. And the way that Syria fit into that is, I think, pretty, pretty well established at this point. But the problem that I have with that kind of argumentation is that it ignores one of the fundamental realities of not just self-defense, but revolutionary self-defense organization. And that is that when a people arms themselves, organizes themselves, mobilizes themselves, and actually effectively defends their territory and regains and or liberates that territory, no group anywhere in the world who has gone through that would then turn around and disarm themselves and resubjugate themselves to a state that they never felt they were equally a part of. Rather, that the it is it is only natural that you would see the Kurdish forces inside of Syria saying, actually, we fought for this territory. We shed blood for this territory. Our brothers and sisters died for this territory. It is ours, and you're not going to take it back from us. Yeah, exactly that. There's, I couldn't put it better. It is exactly that. The Kurds are building um, a revolutionary system and structure, which you know is definitely a model for the rest of the Middle East, but essentially could be a model for the rest of the world. And the last thing they need is 
um, let alone um, being attacked by uh, different groups, but especially groups that consider themselves left and revolutionary as well. What the Kurds need in is support from all international left groups and re- re- groups that consider themselves revolutionary. Yeah, I, I I agree. It's 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 a sad it's a sad commentary on the nature of the conflict in Syria. These lines that have been drawn, I think, are uh, they they should be at least very permeable. You know that in defending Syria against an international campaign backed by the Saudis and the Turks and all of the rest of them, in defending Syria, you, it shouldn't necessarily then be a prerequisite that you can't equally defend the Kurds and their right to establish an independent authority of their own. I, 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 to me, I don't see how those things are necessarily, um, you know, mutually exclusive, but unfortunately I think the Syria issue, and I've said this repeatedly to many people publicly, that the Syria issue has been what I would say is fetishized, that they have made Syria into an object of fetish. And the problem with that is that it ignores the political realities and it ignores what I consider to be the ideological necessity of progressive political organization. Yes, completely. And um, I, 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 I'm quite happy you mentioned the fetishization of the Syrian issue because, of course, Kurds have experienced that in uh, throughout the fight against ISIS and um, the Rojava situation when it came to the uh, the women fighters and the ideology in general, it was either fetishized or it was made to seem like this um, utopian system that can only um, be created and exist in you know the middle of a war zone where nothing else was there, so they can create this. But actually, what is what is happening can be can be created and built anywhere. Yeah, it's. <laughs> It's interesting that you would that you would say that because in many ways I one of the one of the projects that I have myself is 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 working towards building uh, real world uh, local community solutions to a lot of the problems that we're facing from corporate control and uh, you know the military industrial complex and so forth. That I think that one of the aspects of activism that has to happen, especially not not just in you know the global south and in war zones, but especially in the developed so called global north, uh, one of the things that has to happen is the creation of independent uh, infrastructure and an independent political, economic, and social architecture that can actually act in parallel with the control system that exists. Well, hey, guess what? That's exactly what they're building in the Kurdish part of Syria and in Kurdistan uh, generally if the other forces were removed from the equation. So if anything, the Kurds are uh, presenting us with a model that can be exported around the world. Yes, completely. And we've been shouting this from the from the rooftops uh, for a very long time that the the Kurdish model in uh, Rojava, in Kurdistan, and um, in the region in general can be a model for the rest of the world. And this needs to be understood that um, it's not it's not just a selfish movement. And I think I, I I mean I think I can comfortably say that. Many people uh, know now, and I hope they know now, that this is not a selfish model, and it certainly is not a nationalist model that is just for the Kurds. This is a model, um, well, this is a model of the ideology offered by Abdullah Öcalan put into practice to show that it can actually work, and it's not just um, perhaps... I don't know his his utopian dream what, what, that he's been writing, you know, in his seventeen years of imprisonment on the Imbrella Islands. That you know what this guy has actually written something that can be put into practice, and it is being. Yeah, the only other the only other thing I would say in res- I guess in a response to what I had just said is that we also should guard against fetishizing what the Kurds are doing too because I don't think that we should, you know, and I think that this is a tendency among the anarchist left uh, at least that I see is to really fetishize what what is happening in Kurdistan out irrespective of the other political uh situation. So that's why I find it so in incong- 
incongruous when I see, you know, leftists, be they of the anarchist stripe or what have you, talking about Rojava, talking about Kurdistan, talking about the importance of it, and then simultaneously uh, being in favor of intervention to bring down the Assad government, which these are, to me, totally incongruous. You can't support uh, the Kurds and what the Kurds are building and act as the left flank for imperialism, which is ultimately what anybody on the left who advocates for intervention and no-fly zones and humanitarian corridors and all the rest of that stuff, that is ultimately what they're doing because those are tools, those are weapons of war. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because I've had this same issue with um, some of the so-called progressive left, well, especially the anti-imperialist left, which is interesting the way certain people are anti-imperialist. And it's, in a way, I feel like um, a lot of the time, and it, well, at least more than it should be, quite counterproductive, um, the way some people or some groups try to, um, be anti-imperialist and, um, of course, um, fight imperialism. Because, as you mentioned, these things can't exist together. And, of course, whatever happens with the Assad regime, I think the Syrian people should uh, should decide themselves without any intervention. Because, as we saw in Iraq and many other places in the Middle East, and, of course, even with uh, Egypt and the Arab Spring in general, uh, U.S. and imperial intervention does not bring any good, and people need to understand that it certainly does not bring any group, um, any good. And yes, these people, um, these people in power in these regions and in these countries have been dictators and done many heinous things. But at the same time, the U.S. intervention or just in general imperial intervention does not make it any better. Well, and, and again, I find myself in the same situation. You know, it's crazy, but I find myself in the same situation every damn time this happens. Because when it was Bush and the degenerate right-wing Republicans waging war on uh, Iraq, I found myself in the situation where people are saying, well, how are you going to defend Saddam Hussein? Well, I'm not necessarily in love with Saddam Hussein, but I think that the war is wrong. I think that Saddam Hussein and, and the government of Iraq should be a lot, should be dealt with by the Iraqi people and so forth. I said the same thing in the Republican administration. I said the same thing with Obama and Libya and in Syria and elsewhere. And oftentimes I find some people on the left even who are able to kind of flip the flip the switch when it when it comes to these kinds of situations where they'll oppose the Iraq war but then they'll say they support the Libyan revolution and the destruction of Gaddafi or they support the so-called Syrian revolution and the destruction of Assad. I'm sorry but you can't have it both ways. You can't be against imperialism and then support the forces of imperialism when they're getting rid of people you don't like. Yeah, completely. And um, I think, of course, it's important to mention that people like, you know, people like Gaddafi and, of course, um, Assad and Saddam Hussein, um, as you mentioned, of course, none of us are in love with them. And in fact, they, of course, have done heinous things to their own people and just people living within their uh, country. But the point is that you can it, it's counterproductive um to to support the imperial intervention and also i'd like to mention that i have also seen in some um anti-imperialist and um essentially groups that i would um you know really desperately want to be on the right track that at the same time i think it's problematic just because you're being anti-imperialist to glorify people like you know gaddafi and assad and Saddam Hussein. I think it's important to get the balance right where just because you're being uh, anti-imperialist, which is of course the thing to be, that you're not glorifying these dictators who have committed heinous acts against their own people. I think it's very important and I think that's why the the Kurds in the region are, um, I think, a great example um, because of course they have not been pro of course, they've been anti-imperialism and anti-dictatorship um, and um, what these people have done, what these dictators have done to their own people. So a lot of people expected them to side with a particular side. So are the Kurds going to go with the uh, with the US or are they going to go with Assad? No. And the Kurds came out and said, and I remember Salih Muslim making a, uh, making a speech and said, no, we're not on anyone's side. We are creating our own side and want to build our autonomy, our democratic autonomy for the Kurds and the people of the region. And 
as I mentioned at the beginning of the um, of our talk, that there is still, despite the embargo and despite the uh, desperate um, attempts to isolate and uh, weaken weaken Rojava, there's massive migration from different parts of Syria to Rojava because this is what they want. They want this third alternative. They didn't want A or B. They 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 wanted the C that the Kurds in Rojava created. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I will uh, slightly disagree with you a little bit about Gaddafi. I, I, I think that there was a lot more positive to say about Gaddafi than some of the other people that we might mention, including development in Africa, his revolutionary support for a number of pan-African organizations, African-American organizations, and so forth. But I don't want to quibble about uh, Libya and Gaddafi at the moment. Um, but I do think that the general the, the general point that you're making is correct, that, that what we really are looking at with the Kurds is a potential uh, new alternative to the either the siding with imperialism or you know siding completely with uh, you know this this government or that government, and in particular, the Kurds are in a complex situation because two of the governments that that uh, you know occupy Kurdish territory, if you will, these governments are essentially at war with each other too. So the 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 the, the situation is, I think, a lot more complex than even most people on the so-called left like to admit um yeah completely it's it's a complicated situation and that's why i think um of course having conversations like this are um crucial and very important because it's even in the progressive left and just in general people and groups who um who consider themselves to be revolutionary it's been it's been quite uh complicated for them to understand, and I must say, when when I was first reading, and you know, quite a few years ago, when I was first reading on the ideology and understanding, uh, trying to understand, you know, this alternative, it was complicated and confusing for me as well. And of course, I just had to, I had to read more about it. I had to have more conversations with friends um, and comrades about it to really understand. And I think this comes from this com- this confusion comes from, despite how revolutionary and leftist left you are in in i guess in your emotions and in your heart and what you would want for humanity because uh, the idea of the nation state have been, has been drilled into us for so long and that and we don't understand how an alternative can exist outside and rejecting the nation state and i think perhaps that's the key where um we need to explain that it can exist outside of the idea of the nation state and you know rojava is an example and a model for that yeah, it's only the the debate is really about how you get there because obviously the traditional uh you know Marxist uh understanding of the state and the quote unquote withering away once you had the dictatorship of the proletariat and all of that versus a more anarchist viewpoint. We don't have time to go into all of the political theory behind all of this, but uh I could take a look at my bookshelf and I can see an equal representation of both of those on my bookshelf. So hopefully, hopefully I'm hitting it in the sweet spot there. But uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. We could we could continue speaking for hours and hours. But um, Elif Sarakhan, I want to thank you for coming on the program. Uh, You guys should definitely follow her work, her very important organizing work on behalf of Kurdish Solidarity. And on a lot of these issues we've been discussing, the Kurdish Students Union, an important organization the free youth movement as well. Follow uh, Elif on Twitter at E-L-X-E-Y-A-L. Elif Sarakhan, thanks for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Thank you very much for having me, Eric. Listeners, thanks as always. Speak to you again next week. 